If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is all about the birth of Christ. In verses 1 through 3, we see the historical context of Christ's birth. In verses 4 through 5, which we'll be looking at today, we see the location of Christ's birth. In verses 6 and 7, we see the manner of Christ's birth. And then verse 8 through really the rest of the chapter, we see the response to Christ's birth. So it's all centered around the birth of Christ. And we'll be looking throughout this chapter all the way through the month of November and December. So like I said, we get an extended advent this year. It's awesome to do. So last week we saw the historical context in verses 1 through 3. And how through it... We see in this, this remarkable reality of the decree going forth from Augustus Caesar, the registration put forth by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, that literally moves this entire empire around for this scene to take place. We saw how through that, what Luke is detailing to us, is the way in which in his sovereignty over all things, God will move the hearts of emperors and governors, that he will shift entire empires around, For the sake of accomplishing his purposes, for bringing about the glory of his name, and ultimately to establish the good of his people. He is sovereign over all these things. He's sovereign over time. He's sovereign over rulers. He's sovereign over people. And because of that, we can rest knowing that he will be faithful to accomplish all that he has promised. The glory of his name and the good of his people. Today, we now look at the second thing that Luke gives us, and that is the location. The location, this little town of Bethlehem. And today, my my prayer is that we will see the big significance of this little town. So let's read together Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're told from this verse, very simple, that because of the registration, because of the degree of taxation, these individuals within Israel have been required to go to the homes of their lineage. And we see that because David's home, he comes through the lineage of, uh, or excuse me, Joseph comes through the lineage of David, he has to return to Bethlehem. And so him and Mary go on this journey, they go to Bethlehem, and there it sets the stage for what will be the birth in those next few verses. Now, it's important to note uh, a little interesting tidbit is that Luke refers to Mary in this text as Joseph's betrothed, as opposed to his wife. Now, we know that Joseph has already taken Mary to be his wife at this point. One, that's the reason why she travels with him, as opposed to staying under the headship of her father, which is where she would have still remained at this point. But Joseph has taken her as his wife, as the angel of the Lord told him to do so. He's taken her as his wife. But the reason why... um, 
Luke wants to continue to use that language of betrothal as opposed to he took his wife Mary is because there was a clear thing that was necessary for a full marriage covenant to be established, and that was obviously consummation. But the reason why she is referred to as the betrothed is because Luke is wanting to make very clear that it was not till after Christ's birth that the marriage of Joseph and Mary were, was fully consummated. He was asked to refrain from that, and, and there's obvious reasons for that. That was to ensure that there could be no mistake whatsoever that this indeed was a virgin birth. And so I just, it's just interesting to note those details and why Luke uses the language that he does. So they have traveled from Galilee, Nazareth and Galilee, all the way to Bethlehem. We can pull up the map here. And we saw this a little bit last time as we looked um, with Mary's journey to Elizabeth uh, down in Hebron. Now Hebron is just past uh, Bethlehem there going southward. But we see starting up in Nazareth, going down uh, past Mount Tabor, across the plain of Esdraelon. Oftentimes they would have crossed over the Jordan River, go southward, back over the Jordan River to Jericho on Jerusalem. Now, you may ask, why in the world would they go out of their way? And this is what most scholars believe that the traditional route for Jews during this period would have been. It's because Samaritans, Samaritans excuse me, were seen as unclean. And to go through the land would to have made oneself unclean. They would have had to go to the temple and, uh, and offer a purification ritual. And so overwhelmingly, uh, Jews from the northern part above Samaria would have crossed over the Jordan, down southward, and back over to keep from walking through the land of Samaria. It was also an area, right, that was considered very dangerous. You wouldn't want to be a Jew caught in Samaria. And that's what leads to the story Jesus gives of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? And those, how dangerous those roads were and things like that. So this was about a 70 to 80 mile journey. And the reason that Luke describes them as going up to Bethlehem is because even though they're moving directionally southward, geographically, this is all going up in elevation. So they climb almost 3,000 feet in elevation going from kind of the plain lands of Nazareth and Galilee going up into the mountainous areas of Jerusalem, and then about six or seven miles south of Jerusalem, you get the little town of Bethlehem. This would have taken four or five days for a normal journey, uh, but remember, uh, Mary is very pregnant at this point, um, and I can imagine you riding on a donkey, um, very pregnant, was not the most comfortable thing, and as tough of a woman as she probably was, uh, this probably would have slowed them down a little bit in their travels. And so it's not surprising that as, as they get to Bethlehem, we will see that all of the inns have been filled, right? They, they're probably kind of moving a little bit slower. They've all been filled. This registration has been out for some time. And so people are all coming to Bethlehem there to meet the needs of this registration. Now, Bethlehem is a very obscure town. Small, it's surrounded by hills, it's got tons of herds and lots of barley fields, but it's just a small town. I mean, it's what we would deem in our America as a flyover state, right? It's lots of animals and fields. Real small, 
seemingly obscure and insignificant, definitely overshadowed by Jerusalem. Yet, in the midst of its obscurity, we find Bethlehem in a number of places in Scripture. Uh, the first place that we, we get is when Rebekah gives birth to her second son, Benjamin. She does so in Bethlehem, and it's there where she dies. Now, at that time, Bethlehem had another title. It was called Ephrathah. And so she dies there, and and that's where we get, you know, Rachel's tomb is established there. And it wouldn't be shocked at all if, as many were traveling to this area, they would have passed by Rachel's tomb, and, and perhaps there was an area where they could, you know, pay their respects or whatnot to that great story of their history. We know what would happen after that story, though, is that the great famine would come, and God had already set in place a way to save the tribes of Israel, the patriarchs, through a brother that they despised and sold into slavery in Egypt. From there, they would go to Egypt to seek grain and help and come to find out, oh, the brother that they sold in slavery is the guy in charge, Joseph. And they are saved by God's provision in the midst of their wickedness. But we know that that led to a time of slavery, a period of slavery. And Israel would be reestablished out of that and through the leading of Moses and the Exodus. And then they would get into the promised land through the conquest of Canaan with Joshua. And then early on, right, they, they had to figure out a way in which to govern the tribes, and they did so through judges. And during the time of judges, we get an interesting story that kind of comes out of nowhere in our Bible. A story of a Moabite woman named Ruth. And Ruth just so happens to get married by uh, an Israelite man who has taken a Moabite to be his wife, which was already wrong. Don't do that. That was considered bad. Nevertheless, we see a story of tragedy, right? Naomi, her mother-in-law, loses her husband. And Ruth and another another, another Moabite woman, they lose their husbands, Naomi's two sons. It's a picture of tragedy. The one young lady, Naomi, says, listen, I'm going back to Israel, but there's nothing there for you guys. And the one young lady says, okay, I'll stay here with my family where I know. But not Ruth. Ruth says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And in this amazing picture of love, She clings to her mother-in-law. That's rare, right? And she goes back to a place called Bethlehem. And there, she just so happens to be gleaning in barley fields, where she just so happens to meet a guy named Boaz, who just so happens to be a kinsman redeemer, able to restore the line of Naomi. And they would become married. And they would give birth to a a man named Obed, 
who would then give birth to a man named Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And this seems insignificant to us until we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's the context now. Israel doesn't like judges, so we want a king like everybody else does. Samuel, the prophet Samuel says, it's not going to go very well for you. But, hey, who listens to God anyways, right? So, he tells them, listen, if you take a king, he's going to tax you all the time. He is going to take your sons away to war, and you're not going to like it. But Israel says, hey, everyone else is doing it. Why not? It's actually why Thomas Paine, in his book Common Sense that went out in the Revolutionary War, he used that indictment from Samuel regarding Saul the king as a statement to tell uh, the American colonialists who were rising up to fight a revolution that monarchy was the first original sin. <laughs> That's, that was his idea there. And he uses that as a picture and says, listen, if you want a king, you're, just, you're choosing wickedness. Uh, and so it's a fascinating connection with history. But we nevertheless, Saul raises up, and at first it seems all right, but we know things go awry really quickly. And Saul disobeys the Lord, takes things into his own hands, he's a very impatient guy. And the Lord says, I'm done with Saul. I'm going to choose a king after my own heart. So he tells Samuel, hey, there's a guy named Jesse the Bethlehemite. And you're going to go and choose one of his sons to be the king. One of his sons will be my king. So Samuel says, all right. So he goes to Jesse the Bethlehemite. We know the story, right? 1 Samuel 16. Jesse lines up all of his oldest sons, rightfully so. He lines up all of his oldest sons to have them prepared. And, and, and Samuel's walking around and he, he, he recognizes the Lord has not chosen any of them. And he says, there's another one. Where's your other son? And Jesse, shocked, says, well, there's my baby boy, you know, David. He's, but he's a nobody. He's an obscure little boy. Like, he's nobody. He's just out in the woods. He's, right now he's taking care of our sheep because somebody's got to do it while you're actually picking the right king. And Samuel says, no, let me go see him. And we all know the story, right? goes and he anoints David. David is the chosen one of the Lord. The youngest of them. Which is exactly how God often chooses it. To show it. It's not man who's writing the story. It's God. So he takes David and anoints him as king there in the shepherd fields of Bethlehem. And so forever, Bethlehem became known as the city of David. The birthplace of of the first king after God's own heart, the king that God had chose for Israel. Now, we saw last week, right? God could have moved them anywhere, right? God could have taken them to Jerusalem. He could have taken them already straight to Egypt. He could have taken them anywhere for Jesus to have been born. But he chooses to bring them to Bethlehem. And there are two reasons that I believe he does this. The first and the easiest reason is he's prophesied that this is where the king will come from. The eternal messianic king will come from Bethlehem. And so, okay, we've got to meet that prophecy. God is faithful. He gives no void words. And so he is going to ensure that his promises come to pass. So that's the first reason. 
But there's a second reason that is often lost in the details. And that is that Bethlehem, the birthplace of Bethlehem, actually gives us some strong implications as to who this child would be. His birthplace actually reveals realities of his identity. And here's the main point of our message today. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem served to reveal three truths about his identity. First, he was the eternal messianic king. Secondly, he was the bread of life. And three, he was the sacrificial lamb of God. Those three realities are established by his birthplace in Bethlehem. And let's uh, work together to show you how that is. First, Bethlehem was where the eternal messianic king would arise. When God chose David as a king back in 2 Samuel 7, he made a covenant with David that one of his sons would sit forever on an eternal throne. That they would reign eternally as king of kings and lord of lords. And we are told from biblical prophecy that this ruler would arise from the little town of Bethlehem. You can turn with me if you'd like, or just keep your finger where you are, but we're going to go to Micah chapter 5 to see this prophecy unfold. So Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 through verse 5, we see this messianic prophecy of the prophet Micah. We read, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient a days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flocks in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the prophecy of the messianic king who would come to restore the remnant of Israel and to gather the nations to himself to be their peace. Now, Micah cannot be referring to David. Why? Because this prophecy is given 300 years after David's been dead. David's well gone at this point. Solomon's well gone at this point. So it's not about them. And this prophecy was given around 700 years before Jesus. So it was a a picture of a future hope to come. And, And I would say real quickly as an aside, one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest testament of the realities that Jesus is indeed the Messiah is the pinpoint accuracy of the prophecies that he fulfills. It's mathematically impossible for one person 
to fulfill the number of prophecies that Christ does to a T. The overwhelming number of prophecies that Christ literally fulfills perfectly. You read and you go, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Without a doubt. One of the great testaments is that he indeed is the yes and amen of all God's promises. Now, this prophecy tells us a lot about who this messianic ruler would be and how he would rule. First, it says that he is an eternal ruler. Notice, it says that his days are from long ago, from ancient of days. In other words, though this king will be born, he will be eternal. How does that work? Well, that's a good question if we don't have Jesus. Jesus unfolds how the eternal God, he who was in the beginning with God, who was the word of God, who was with God, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is ancient of days. He comes from the father, the ancient of days, and he comes and takes upon flesh to be an eternal ruler for his people. He is fully God and fully man. Notice, too, that he will indeed come from no other place than Bethlehem Ephrathah, this little town who said almost too little to even be numbered among the clans of Judah. In other words, we all know that the line of royalty would pass through the line of Judah. But should we be shocked that God chooses the smallest of its clans, the smallest of its towns, to bring forth the greatest of its rulers. This is how God works. To shame and, and, and undermine all of our sensibilities of how we think things should be. And every Jew knew exactly, every Israelite knew exactly that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. This was one of the struggles that they had when they knew that Jesus was coming out of Nazareth. This is what caused a lot of debates. Wait, wait, wait. we know that he worked in Nazareth. He was a carpenter up there. My sister had her table done by him. We see this in John chapter 7, verse 41 through 42. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So you see, there's no doubt. They knew their Bible. They knew the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. Little did they know that that perceived carpenter teacher from Galilee had actually been born in Bethlehem. Now, look at what Micah says further about this eternal ruler. He says that he would not rule over his people with a rod of harm. He, he doesn't rod in a way that, that, that brings people uh, through just terror and cruelty. He, he's not a despot in the sense of a, a wicked ruler who, who, who only gathers for his own pleasure. No. He is a ruler who will rule his people like a strong shepherd. Micah says, and they shall dwell secure. It is not Jesus who says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. 
The shepherd king who will perfectly care and tend for his flock. Who leads us into the greenest pastures and besides still waters. As Psalm 23 says. This ruler shepherd would stand over watching his flock. Protecting them from anything which sought to devour them. And this is why David was chosen. Why he is chosen to be king I believe. Because David is what? He's a shepherd king. And that's precisely what the Messiah would be. A shepherd king. One who knows how to tend the flock while also ruling the army. Micah continues that this ruler will be great to all the ends of the earth. That is to say that he will have authority over all of creation. All of the earth will be underneath his reign and his rule. And does not Jesus say in Matthew 20 and 18, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. You see, this will be no mere tribal deity. He will be the king of kings and lord of lords and every knee will bow and tongue confess. He will be the ruler of the earth. And notice finally, he shall be his people's peace. Notice Micah doesn't say he's going to bring them peace or he's going to work the conditions so that it will be peaceful. No, he says he shall be their peace. He's our peace. In spite of whatever else is going on in the world today, if you have Christ, you have peace. My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave, not as the world gives, but my peace do I give unto you, Jesus said. He shall be your peace. In other words, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we're not just waiting for peace. We already have it. But is that reflected in your life? Or have the circumstances that you're going through already gotten the best of you? Has it taken your eyes from the reality that you already have a settled peace in Christ? My friends, I know that so many of our lives are full of turmoil. But I want you to know in Christ you already have peace. Peace that is readily available to you. I hope you'll receive it. Embrace it. To not be overcome by the pain of this world, but to know that the Christ you have has already overcome the world. And in Him you have peace because the eternal ruler has already made His residence in you if you're in Christ today. So you can have peace in Him and through Him. Beloved, that little town of Bethlehem was going to bring forth an eternal Messiah, a ruler who would perfectly shepherd his people, protect them from every enemy, and forever be their prince of peace. And 2,000 years ago, on a starry night in that little town, a cry that broke the silence in a stable said, the ruler has come. That ruler has come. And his name is Jesus. His birth in Bethlehem revealed that Jesus would indeed be the eternal Messiah, the ruler, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. Secondly, Bethlehem is the house of bread. 
literally means house of bread. Beth, which is house, lahem, bread. House of bread. Now, when we think of bread, we think of wheat or some other enriched, bleached product that's probably killing us slowly. But wheat was extremely expensive in Israel. And it did not grow well in the dry and arid climate of the region. So rather than wheat being the crop and the staple of the bread made in Bethlehem, the crop there was barley. So it was barley bread. That is, that's what it made. That was its staple crop. That's why in Ruth, it says at the end of chapter 1, that Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem when? The beginning of the barley harvest. Full of barley fields. Now, barley, when it becomes mature, it turns very light. Its tips almost become white. And so when the sun hits it at a right angle, it looks like a blanket of white over the entire field. Which is why Jesus used the parable, right? That when he said that if you, the, the, the harvest is ready, right? the harvest is, is white for the plucking. He was using those illustrations of Bethlehem and the harvest around it as the barley fields would have ripened and looked white to those looking out over them as a sea and a blanket. Remember his parable. He says, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Luke John 4.35 Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus is using the imagery of a mature and ripening barley field. Now, barley matured practically an entire month earlier than wheat did. And thus it represented the first fruits of Israel's harvest. And so when, when Israel would offer up its first fruits of the coming harvest, it was barley that was offered up because it came much sooner than wheat did. So when they would offer up their grain harvest, their grain sacrifices at the first fruits offerings, it was barley that was given. Now, not only that, but barley was grown in such an abundance in Bethlehem that it was able to be sold very inexpensively. There, there was so much supply that the cost was very low. And thus, it was one of the central foods for the poor and the lower class. It was always valued less than wheat. You can see this in 2 Kings chapter 7. And although barley was sometimes used as fodder in Bible days, its main use was a staple food. It was ground and baked into round cakes. You see that in Judges chapter 7. Thus, the fields of Bethlehem were vital in supporting so many who without bread would have been left to starve as only the rich were those who could afford the wheat. In fact, in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we read the following. John chapter 6, verse 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus took that five barley loaves from the boy who's 
probably that's all his family had to eat. It's probably his grocery run for the week, if not the month. And he took those five barley loaves and filled five thousand people, or, and filled five thousand people with it, and left twelve baskets left over for his disciples. That great reminder that when you live in service to the Lord, giving all that you have for Him, there will always be left over for you. One final note regarding the barley of Bethlehem was that what made barley such an important crop of this area was that barley, unlike wheat, can grow in very dry, arid, and difficult climates. It can survive some of the harshest weather and the most severest of droughts, which is why they actually can grow barley up in Delta Junction, a number of barley farms up there. So here was this little town called the House of Bread, filled with the staple crop of barley, which was offered as the first fruit offerings during the Passover week. It was abundantly grown, and therefore the main sustenance for all manner of men, richest to poor, able to withstand the harshest climates. And that's pretty cool if you're an an agrarian person. But what makes it significant is how this this barley grown in the house of bread, actually points us to the babe who was born there. You see, remember back to the story of the 5,000 and those five barley loaves and two fish? After multiplying them and feeding the 5,000, Jesus explains to his disciples and those that are there that that was merely an illustration of a greater truth. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. My friends, there is no coincidence that it would be the house of bread, which would be the location where the bread of life, Jesus, was born. It's not a coincidence. That's not an accident. And what makes it all the more fascinating is that sustenance to make the bread of Bethlehem was barley. A grain that was offered as the first fruit offerings to the Lord. And what does Paul write of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 20? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection paved the way for your and my resurrection. When Christ rose from the grave, it was a first fruits declaration that a greater harvest of resurrection is going to come. If you're in Christ, you're going to belong to that. Significantly, what's fascinating, Jesus was killed on the Passover, which it seems that he was. Then his resurrection on the third day would have fallen on the Jewish month of Nisan's and on the day of 16, so Nisan 16. And that is the day that they celebrate the Feast of the First Fruits. So Christ died on the Passover and raised from the grave on the Feast of the First Fruits, the day when the barley would have been offered as a sacrifice. Secondly, in Jesus, He is a bread of life that did not just come to save the rich. He did not come to just save those who had it all together. He came to save every manner of man. From the lowest of low to the richest of rich. And everything else in between. 
By His grace and saving power, He brings those both to the table and provides us an everlasting sustenance by which those who partake of Him will never hunger again. Lastly, the bread of life, which is Christ Jesus, can thrive in any environment. Like the barley who can pop up in the driest, harshest, most arid of climates, so too does the fruit of Christ. Even in the driest of valleys, he brings forth life. In the harshest of spiritual droughts, he springs forth from the soil of once hardened hearts. And from the most arid of context, he has reaped a bountiful harvest. Whether it was the persecution of the Roman Empire, whether it was Islamic barbarism, whether it's Chinese torture, Soviet genocide, none of it has ever stopped this babe of Bethlehem from producing his life-giving bread and feeding countless numbers of believers even in the most treacherous environments. From Soviet genocide to American complacency, it will spring up where he sees it fit. Nothing will stop the bread of life from springing up exactly where he sees fit to sustain and nourish those he has called to himself. So in that little town laid the most abundant and eternal provision of life, giving bread that the world has ever known in that infant called Jesus. Jesus, it's not shocking that the house of bread would be the place that God would bring forth the bread of life for all to partake of and to be sustained forever by Him. Yet there is one more significant aspect. Thirdly, Bethlehem was where the sacrificial lambs for the temple were raised. The bawling of sheep rang across the fields of Bethlehem. Not only was it full of fields of barley, but outside in its hilly areas were countless fields full of sheep. Every firstborn male from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy. And it was set aside for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Generations of hereditary shepherds tended these sacred flocks. They were common folk. Used to many cold, lonely nights in the field. And as protectors of the sheep, they risked their lives to keep the animals from going astray. From falling into the hills of the the ravines of the country around them. From being taken by wolves and other prey. We read a passage from the Mishnah, which is a bunch of rabbinical teachings. Um, And in Mishnah 7.14, Shekelim 7.4, we read that in the outer fields, there was this large tower that stood in Bethlehem. It was a tower known as Migdal Eder, which is called the Tower of the Flock. And it was here that the shepherds would remain stationed, that they would have a, a group of shepherds who would kind of stay on watch in this tower, able to look out over the fields, And and in that tower, they not only looked out over the fields to make sure that no animals or prey, no wolves were creeping in, but it also gave them an ability to look and to see if if there were any sheep giving birth to new lambs. The reason why that was very important, because if there was a sheep giving birth to a lamb, they needed to get there quickly. Why? To ensure that there would be no blemish. 
They would go to inspect the sheep, to wrap it in swaddling cloth, to ensure that it would stay protected from being blemished in order that it could be a fitting sacrifice for the temple. Now, what's significant about this Migdal eater, the tower of the flock, is that actually the Old Testament talks about it. In that same prophet that we read about the ruler coming out of Bethlehem, in Micah chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, we read something interesting about this tower of the flock. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame... I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, heel of the daughter of Zion, you sh- to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So here, Micah prophesies about this Messiah, which he says will come out of Bethlehem in chapter 5. But in chapter 4, Micah says that he, the Lord, will assemble the lame. He will gather those who have been driven away and will make a remnant of all that were cast off and he would reign forevermore. And that this king would come to the tower of the flock. Make the leader. Now let me ask you a question. Who were the first people to receive an announcement that Jesus was born? Well, Luke's going to tell us. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It is of deep significance that those shepherds who first heard the tidings of the Savior's birth, who first listened to angels' praises singing of the Messiah who had come, were those who were out tending the flocks of sheep intended to be used for sacrifices. They had been watching over the sacrificial lambs of all which were a foreshadow of the eternal sacrificial lamb that they were about to behold with their own eyes. God was using the system that he had always used to bring an end to that system. These shepherds, whose primary duty was to inspect and to ensure that a sheep, that a lamb, was fitting for sacrifice and to ensure that he was the one who indeed would be used for God's atonement. They would ensure that there was no blemish, that it was perfectly aligned and necessary to be used, fitting for the sacrifice. And God, in maintaining that system, would have the first people who beheld his son, the Lamb of God, to be shepherds, beholding the fitting sacrifice.
beholding the fitting sacrifice. So should we be shocked that John the Baptist's first declaration of Christ will be, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Is it not amazing that the Lamb of God who provides the only true forgiving sacrifice for sin would be born in Bethlehem among the sacred flocks destined for temple sacrifice, a system that he would end himself. In other words, Jesus' birth was draped in the shadow of his death. He was born to die so that you and I could live. Every moment of his life was lived in the shadow of Calvary. From start to finish, his purpose was clear. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It was only through his death that our King could fully bring about the promise of Micah 5 as a ruler. In other words, In order to obtain the crown, he had to go through the cross. In order to fulfill Micah 5, he needed to fulfill Isaiah 53. The fullness of his life from his birth onward was draped in the shadow of the cross. It was through his death as the perfect spotless lamb that he would assemble all of us who were lame, poor, dead in sin, outcast with no hope of salvation into one family, ruled by Him for all eternity in perfect holiness and peace. This little town that for years and years housed the sacrificial lambs for the Old Covenant would now be the birthplace of the eternal sacrificial lamb who would bring that old system to a complete and utter end. My friends, before Rachel ever died in childbirth, before Ruth ever left Moab and met Boaz, before David was ever born, God had destined this little town to be the place where he would bring forth his son as an eternal ruler, the bread of life, and the spotless lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was not by accident. Not only would it fulfill the prophecies that God had declared, but it would would reveal undeniably within his identity that he was indeed the eternal ruler come to bring peace to the world. That he indeed was the bread of life by which all who partake of him will never hunger again. And that he indeed is the sacrificial lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Everything about his birthplace was a reflection of who he was himself. But here's the truth about Bethlehem, brothers and sisters. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing significant about it. What makes Bethlehem significant? Why do people flock and do tourist trips to Bethlehem? Not to see the barley. Because it was the birthplace of Christ. Everything that made that little town in any way significant is reflected to its connection with Christ. Because without Christ, 
Bethlehem was only a place where sheep were born to die. And what's true of Bethlehem, brothers and sisters, is actually true of all of us. Without Christ, we are nothing but a place, we are nothing but sheep who are born to die. That's it. We could go through all the reputations and we could have people be a part of our life. We could do big events throughout history. We could do all amazing, wonderful things and, have, and be a part and have our name maybe written in a history book. But without Christ, guess what? It just dies. That's it. We're nothing but obscure people born to die. But in Christ, we are radically significant. In Christ, we no longer are sheep born to die. But we have had a sheep who died for us that we might live. And that through Him, we who are little and small and who have nothing to offer can be made eternally significant in and through Him and the fulfillment of His purposes in our life. There's nothing good about Bethlehem except its connection to Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me be honest with you, there's nothing good about me except my connection to Christ. Without Him, I'm nothing. I can give nothing, I can offer nothing. But with Christ, with Christ, there is significance. With Christ, there is meaning. With Christ, there is hope. With Christ, there is purpose. With Christ, there is life. There's a reason why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do Nothing. And why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a difference Christ makes. And Christ has come. And all those who are in Him not only have fullness of life, not only have fullness of purpose, not only have fullness of meaning and hope, but the most important thing of all, we have peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. For now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My friends, Christ's birth in Bethlehem tells us that we have a king who will perfectly shepherd us for all eternity, who will provide us exactly the, the necessary provision day by day to sustain us through this life and the next, and whose sacrificial death has covered our sin and whose righteousness has been given to us that we might stand forever in the presence of God. Our significance is tied to Christ and Christ alone. Just like Bethlehem. One closing thought. I love the story of Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. The reason why is because it shows us that God delights in using humble people and humble places to accomplish glorious purposes. You may think, what can God do with me? I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody in an obscure place in Alaska. What can God possibly do with Hillside Baptist Church? What can He possibly do with me? 
My friends, we are not the first nobody God's used. Mary was a nobody. Joseph was a nobody. That shepherd boy David left to tend this flock was a nobody. Ruth the Moabite, a nobody. A despised one at that, unfortunately. So were all the apostles, fishermen. And the only one who was actually notable was evil at first. He's killing people. What was Bethlehem to Jerusalem? Nowhere. This is the hick town. What was Nazareth to Rome? And yet it is precisely with these nobodies in the middle of nowhere that God would bring forth his plan of redemption through his son and advance his kingdom throughout the world. My friend, God uses little people and little places like Bethlehem to show how big and mighty he is. That's why he chooses little people in little places. So that he gets the glory. So that when God uses little hillside to do great things, God gets the glory. Because we don't, we don't get to look at us and go, man, it was because of our resources and our skills and our gifts and our talents. It's because God is great and God is big and God is good. That's why. My friend, no matter how small and insignificant you may feel, when God chooses you in Christ for His purposes, it always comes with big significance. You may not think, I have enough. And the answer is, is you don't. And that's the best reality check you'll ever come to. You don't have enough to offer. But neither did that little boy when he only had five loaves. The question is not is how much do you have? How little you are. The question is, is will you give it to Christ? Because he will multiply it. It doesn't matter how little you have. The question is, is will you give it to Christ? Because he loves to take little things. And through his glory... And through his grace and through his provision, give them big significance. So to you all, my little people in the world who feel unheard and left out, whatever you have, give it to Christ. He will multiply it and use it for his glory. And there is nothing more significant in this world than to be used as an instrument for the glory of the King. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tale. O come to us, abide with us. O Lord, Emmanuel. What a Savior. Don't miss the details. For he loves to use little people and little places for big things. For his glory. Surrender it to him. That he might use you today. Let's pray. Father God we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much. For the grand realities. That are often obscure to us in the details. 
We thank you for the truths within them, Lord, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. We thank you that he came to be an eternal ruler, a king of all. We thank you that he came to be the bread of life by which all who eat of him will never, ever hunger again. And we are so thankful that he came to be the shepherd and the sheep. Both the shepherd who leads us and the sheep to die for us. What a savior we have in Jesus. And Lord, just like you have time and time again throughout your word, use the weak things to to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise, the little things to shame the big. God, I I pray, Lord, for those of us here who who feel, have felt as if there's nothing to offer, Lord, I, I pray that we will just give it to you. Like the little boy with five loaves, let us just give to you, God, knowing that whatever you see fit, you will use it for good. You will use it for your glory. And that is the greatest gift we can ever have, God, is to be used for the advancement of your kingdom, for the accomplishment of your purposes and the glory of your name. So, God, whatever we're holding back today, let us surrender it all, knowing that our significance is tied to you and you alone. In Christ alone, we have hope. In Christ alone, we have meaning. In Christ alone, we have life. Lord, thank you for giving us that life. Thank you for giving us Jesus. It's his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.